0: Hello. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu/institute. Thanks so much for being here with me tonight. It's a great pleasure. It's my first time coming to NYU Abu Dhabi. Uh, I got off the plane a couple of days ago. I will do my best to adjust to jet lag as quickly as possible since I flew all the way from California. Uh, And I'm really excited to talk to you today about this book that came out recently called System Error, Where Big Tech Went Wrong and How We Can Reboot. This is a book that I co-authored with two colleagues at Stanford. So I'm a political scientist, a social scientist. I'm interested in human behavior. Um, I co-authored this book with Rob Reich, who's a philosopher really thinks about questions of ethics. And the third co-author is Mehran Sahami, who is the most popular professor at Stanford. He's a computer science professor. And he teaches the introductory computer science class, which in many ways at Stanford is our core curriculum. It is the course that everyone comes to take in their effort to walk on that pathway into Silicon Valley. Now, as I dive in to my talk today, I want to start a little bit by framing my own journey into an exploration of issues of tech policy. Because as you heard in my introduction, I'm a professor of international studies. I spent time at the White House working on issues of global development, democracy and human rights. I was the deputy UN ambassador. Issues of tech policy have been incredibly far from my mind. But two things really transformed my trajectory. The first is when I was a senior official in government. And this was the first Obama term, the second Obama term. It became very clear to me the extraordinary gap that exists between those who are building new technologies and those who are responsible for governing a society being transformed by technology. Now, I should have known this because I live in Silicon Valley and I would fly across the country to my workplace, either at the United Nations or at the White House. But the gulf between these two cultures, the lack of understanding and awareness of the technological frontier, and the critical decisions that were being made not in the halls of government, but in the C-suite, the executive suite of so many companies, were really just so poorly understood by my colleagues in government. Some of the moments that this became most visible were, for example, when there was a terrorist attack in the United States. It was in San Bernardino in California. And it spurred one of the most important debates that we've had in the United States about the role of new technologies that preserve privacy, what's called end-to-end encryption. And for public display, in a very concrete way, was the tension between people's desire to protect the information on that phone that all of us carry around and government's often legitimate desire to be able to protect the population writ large. And so the new technologies that had been introduced to protect people's private information on the iPhone were running headlong against government's desire to be able to access information on an iPhone in order to prevent what people feared could be a follow-on terrorist attack to what had happened in San Bernardino. Another moment where it became fundamentally clear was one of the first major cyber attacks on the US private sector. This was on Sony, which is headquartered elsewhere, but has a big presence in the United States. There was a question of who had carried out this cyber attack. This was, people might remember, a number of years ago when Sony had released a movie that was a mockumentary of Kim Jong-un of North Korea. Um, And there was a cyber attack that basically took All of this personal information embarrassed Sony executives, put it out into the public domain. And in the White House, we were trying to figure out, what do you do when there's a cyber attack on a company? It's not an attack on government. What's the appropriate response? How does one even figure out who has carried out this cyber attack? So these were the early stages of what is really an old and long functioning policy apparatus, trying to figure out what to do about new technologies. And very few people around the table had any exposure to what these technologies were and what design choices were being made in real time that created some of these challenges for society. So that was the first motivation for a pivot in this direction. Now, the second motivation was that I when, when, when I finished my term in the Obama administration, I went back to Stanford University. Now, if you haven't heard of Stanford University, we're a big research university in the United States. We are located at the epicenter of Silicon Valley. And in many ways, the story of Stanford and Silicon Valley are inseparable. That is many of the foundational technologies that have created The internet that have created the personal computer, the iPhone, the mobile revolution that we're in, social media platforms, they were developed through the research and development enterprise of Stanford. And Stanford really had a focus on commercializing these technologies. And so really helped to cultivate the venture capital industry and the pathway that has brought so many of these technologies into your home. So I came back to Stanford in 2015 And I discovered a campus that had been transformed. I'm a political scientist. I teach intro political science. I want to help students think about the world, the relationship between states, geopolitics, how regimes are designed. And there were no longer students in my classroom. Now, I thought maybe it was that I had lost my skill as a teacher. Maybe that was the problem, why students weren't showing up. But there was actually a bigger structural force at work. And the structural force is what you see on this picture, which is that between 2010 and 2020, the number of students majoring in computer science at Stanford had gone through the roof. Students were leaving the social sciences in droves. They wanted to major in computer science. They wanted to become engineers. They wanted to become software designers or to build hardware. They wanted to exercise influence in the world in the way that the techno-optimists of that period and still today think was possible. And so Stanford began to get this reputation. Here's a story from the New Yorker, which is a major magazine in the United States, which called Stanford, Get Rich You. So if you were a young, energetic, brilliant student and you wanted to get rich, your path was to go to Stanford and it was to major in computer science. And so I had a decision before me when I came back as a faculty member, which was, did I want to teach to an empty lecture hall about political science, or was I going to go to where the students were, which was in the computer science buildings? And I thought that maybe one of the most important things I could do as a teacher was to take my knowledge of how societies function, how as social scientists we measure the impact of changes in society on human behavior, people's experience of the world, their economic trajectory, their political attitudes. Take my real world policy experience navigating some of the dilemmas of making decisions on behalf of the American public. Take that expertise and bring it over to the engineering quad. Because if students were going to come to me, what I recognized was so important was that if Stanford is the proving ground and the training ground for the next generation of leaders of technology companies that in the generation ahead, we were gonna need a set of leaders in technology that were prepared to grapple with the social consequences of the products that they were building. So I joined forces with a political philosopher and the most popular computer science professor on campus. That's how I knew we would get students, right? Because they'd want to take a class with this computer science professor. And we began to teach about issues of policy and ethics to Stanford's computer science majors. And so over the last six years, I've taught every Stanford computer science major to think about these issues in systematic ways, to think about the responsibilities that they carry as engineers and technologists, and to prepare them to engage in a world in which technologists are not just responsible for getting product into market, but they're responsible for thinking about the consequences of putting those products into market on the society that people live in. So tonight, I want to tell you a bit of the story of what's come out of that work, training 1,500 computer scientists, working with engineers at night, engaging companies that are trying to think about their social responsibility. And I want to begin with a story. This is the way the book opens. Um, The book opens with a story of this young man. His name is Joshua Browder, Now Joshua Browder in about 2016, 2017, was a freshman at Stanford. And this is one of those great stories of a freshman who arrives, has an idea for a startup company that they want to build, thinks that technology is going to transform the future, and then quickly leaves Stanford, raises his first round of venture capital funding by what should have been his sophomore year as the CEO of a company with a $10 million v- venture capital round. And he's changing the world. Never came back to finish his Stanford degree. Now, the reason I open with this story and that we open the book with this story is his startup idea raises some of the essential issues that we confront when we think about the role of technology in society and also the role of the private sector in guiding technology's trajectory. So like any good startup founder, Joshua Browder was advised to solve a problem that was meaningful to him, right? Something that was what what people often call a pain point, right? Because if it's a pain point for you, it's a pain point for someone else. So what was Joshua Browder's pain point? Well, when Joshua Browder was a high school student in London, England, he got a lot of parking tickets, Okay, He would park his car in places that he was not allowed to park his car. And a police officer would come by and write him a ticket. Now, Josh Browder wasn't earning an income at that point. So the accumulation of all of these parking tickets was an annoyance to him because he didn't have the money to pay for these parking tickets. And so he thought, I'm not the only person who's annoyed by parking tickets. So let me develop an app, an application, that helps people get out of parking tickets. Okay, So this was kind of an early moment in AI. He was creating a chat bot. And the chat bot was an automated mechanism that enabled you to enter the information about your parking ticket. And this chat bot would engage in the process of filling out the relevant forms, drawing on information about past successes in each jurisdiction. So what are the things that you say, I didn't see the sign, or you know, my car wasn't actually there, it wasn't my car, or whatever are the kinds of excuses. And you kind of gum up the process such that ultimately, lots of these bureaucracies quickly let you out of the parking ticket. It's just not worth their time to kind of call you down to court. And so he optimized getting people out of parking tickets. Now, this application was called Do Not Pay sort of brilliant name, you can imagine the appeal on Silicon Valley, I'm gonna get people out of this thing that really bothers them. Now, part of the reason that we give this example is bright eyed, 19 year old startup idea, coded it in his dorm room, is what Joshua Browder was blind to as he built this company. And we think the essence of what he was blind to is what role do parking tickets serve in society? Why do we have parking tickets? So it doesn't take much homework in, if you read about sort of parking enforcement in London, it'll put you to sleep very quickly, but it doesn't take much homework to figure out that parking enforcement in London, like other places, serves all sorts of socially relevant purposes. Like for example, protecting spaces for the disabled who need access to a building. You will get a parking ticket if you park in a space that reserved for someone who has a disability. People also need to clean streets. And so you can't park in particular streets at a particular moment in time because those streets need to be cleaned by street sweepers. And that serves a broader social benefit. The UK also has congestion pricing. They're trying to reduce the number of cars that are in central London, both because of traffic but also because of air pollution. And so parking, restrictions on parking is another way of also trying to get people on the subway and to get people on the trains. And in addition, parking parking tickets actually also are the key contributor to the infrastructure fund that enables the preservation of the roadway infrastructure in the UK. So if you set out to solve your little problem, that pain point that Joshua Browder experienced, but you don't think about the broader social context in which that problem is solved, you end up with outcomes that are not socially optimal, that may solve for the particular pain point of an individual, but may have negative social ramifications. Now, I'll admit you all may not care very much about parking enforcement. In fact, maybe you have a lot of parking tickets, and so this application sounds really enticing to you. But Joshua Browder's expansion of this company is to basically replace the legal industry. He says, not only should you be able to get out of parking tickets, but why do we have to pay lawyers? Lawyers are an awfully expensive and clunky process. And they're out of reach. We have an access to justice crisis in many parts of the world. And so I'm going to develop a set of AI chatbots that substitute for lawyers. And when you hear Josh Browder talk about his company in its most grandiose terms, he uses examples like, well, you might find yourself in a custody battle in a divorce for your children. Use our chatbot to get your kids back and other such extreme examples. Now, all of this is fanciful. It's in the spirit of Silicon Valley companies overselling what their technologies can do as a way of sparking our imagination. But if you imagine a world where the do not pay logic of building this technology actually comes to transform our legal system without attention to why that legal system exists, why human beings are engaged in the practice of law, what the relationship between a lawyer and the person they represent actually means, you can begin to think about what some of those negative social consequences might look like. So that's the story that we open the book with. And it's an invitation to think about how the decisions made inside a company and inside the private sector might have broader social consequences. I wanna fast forward from 2016 to the present moment. If I took a show of hands, how many of you have played with ChatGPT? I'm pretty sure it would be most people in this room. And if it isn't you, your kids or your grandkids play with ChatGPT all the time. It took the world by storm a year ago it's one of the first instantiations of generative AI. We write about it in the last chapter of our book as an example two years ago of a technology that no one knew about but was going to transform everything about the world in which we inhabit. Now, generative AI is a, a sort of chat bot on steroids. It can write essays for you. It can write memos for you. It can build a slide deck. It can write your computer code If you're trying to code, it has all these extraordinary capabilities. It can even tell you the answer to the question, will large language models take over the world? And reassuringly, it tells us, no, they're not capable of taking over the world, be reassured. Now, what are these technologies doing? These technologies are not thinking, they're not sentient beings. They're basically predicting the next word in a sequence based on large amounts, copious amounts of data that try and figure out the structure of sentences and how sentences respond to prompts. So they're prediction models, but they're prediction models that generate language. Now, generative AI has some similarities to the story of do not pay. Because generative AI comes about in a laboratory, the laboratory of OpenAI, the laboratory of DeepMind and Google, it's a new technology that has all sorts of potential beneficial end uses for society. But it also has potential harmful uses for society. Now, I'm a parent to a 13-year-old and a 16-year-old. So the first harmful use that I think about is the impact of generative AI on their learning. So one of the things that happens when you roll out generative AI, as OpenAI did through ChatGPT, is commercialization comes about. How do we turn this product into something that enables us to reap a profit? And one of the first versions of commercialization is to take generative AI and to sell it to kids. Because generative AI solves a really consequential problem for kids, which is, how do I write an essay about Shakespeare when I don't understand Romeo and Juliet, right? or how do I efficiently get through my history textbook and repeat back to my my teacher in a way that signals that I've spent the kind of painstaking time memorizing the facts of the history of a particular context. And so you get these companies that quickly emerge that are selling this tool to kids. Now, OpenAI, as they rolled out the technology, was not thinking about this consequence, right? So it gets rolled out in the month of November. It becomes the fastest growing technology in terms of user base ever known to history. It expands well beyond what OpenAI thought was possible. And in the United States alone, and you can think about this at the global scale, you've got hundreds of thousands of teachers in K-12 environments and in university environments that have to grapple with the consequences of this in real time with no advance warning, no technical support, no advice about what the implications are. And you could say, well, that's not the responsibility of open AI to figure that out. But it's one of these easily anticipated unintended consequences of this new technology. And whose responsibility is it to think about those consequences? And that's one of the challenges. That we confront with these new technologies. Now, that may also feel to you like a relatively harmless consequence. But many folks in this day and age are now thinking about something that we call existential risk, right? And existential risk is often encapsulated in this phrase, p-doom, which is the probability of doom. And people feel with the release of Generative AI, ChatGPT, and in fact, they're open source versions of this that enable people to replicate these large language models all over the world. People believe that the probability of doom, by which they mean the existential threat to human life on the planet, has gone up. Now, you may not think P doom is 100%. You may not even think it's 10%. But if you think it's gone from to 2%, that's a pretty significant change in something that is existentially consequential for our existence on the planet. And what people are fearing in this AI moment, and it is a dystopian future, and it is very much overblown, I think in AI's capabilities don't amount to this, but is AI developing a capability to act beyond what its human overseers permit it to do? And why should we be concerned about this at all? Well, part of the answer is that the builders of AI don't even understand how AI works. That AI is so complex and so powerful, it's beyond human cognition to understand how it's generating the outputs that it does. It's beyond our ability to think about the complexity of the processing mechanisms. And in that sense, it's modeled on the human brain, something we also don't understand very well at all. So this moment of this new technology, not a chatbot to get you out of parking tickets, but a chatbot to write papers, to write computer code, to generate images from scratch and video in my voice speaking about issues that I've never spoken about, all of these things are now possible. And it's led to a moment in which the world's governments are reckoning in a very serious way with what does this mean for society? And what is the role of our political institutions, whether it's the US Congress, the leadership of the UAE, the United Nations, in figuring out how we're going to interact with these technologies going forward. The poster boy for this is a guy named Sam Altman. Sam Altman, another Stanford dropout, left to start a company many moons ago. The company he now leads is OpenAI. You may have seen him in news a couple months ago. He was forced out of OpenAI for a day. He was then brought back as CEO. If you saw the rallying of support for Sam Altman, you'd know that these were a set of individuals who were deeply invested in his success. People who had equity, basically, in OpenAI's success. Every employee, every venture capitalist that was invested in OpenAI, Microsoft, et cetera. So this is the next money train for Silicon Valley in this AI moment. And this is Sam testifying before Congress. I've gotten to know Sam. I've invited him to some of our classes where we we talk about these complex issues. And the leadership of this new movement in technology recognizes that the potential harms of their technologies are significant, the unintended consequences, the harmful uses, and they are looking for help. At least that's what they say. And they are looking for government to begin to shape the trajectory of these technologies. But what government should do is very much an open question. And I'll kind of end my talk with where that debate stands. So here's the big point I want to make to you if you take nothing else from today's talk, which is that from the story of Sam Browder to the story of Sam Altman, and not everyone in Silicon Valley is named Sam, but those are the two examples I gave you, the fundamental issue that we confront is that the pace of technological change is extraordinarily fast. It generates unbelievable benefits to humanity. But like any activity of the private sector, it also generates what economists call externalities. Now, the typical way in which we think about externalities is through the lens of environmental pollution. You build a factory. The factory produces some widget. It emits things into the atmosphere or into the water. Those things affect the air we breathe or the water that we drink. But that is a negative externality. The company is not focused on maintaining clean water or clean air. The company is focused on producing this new technology. And there's a market failure in the absence of government intervention. In the absence of government saying, we need to account for the social costs of your production process. Either by taxing you, right? So that we can actually mitigate these issues or by implementing regulations. You know that force you or compel you not to emit or not to dump into the water. It's the typical way that we think about government engagement in the world is to address these kinds of negative externalities that the private sector generates. But we have not used this lens to think about new technologies and it's absolutely the right framework for many of the dilemmas that I'm going to describe. Now What motivates thinking about this through the lens of externalities is that in the design of new technologies, there are choices that have to be made, choices that weigh competing values. And I'll give you examples of what those competing values are. But if those choices are only made by the technologists who build new technologies, their incentives are to weight those values in a way that serve their private interests rather than what might be our social interests. And you could say that's fine. That's actually the role of the private sector. But then the question is, who's weighing our broader social interests? And a world in which government sees the advance of technology in an unfettered way is one in which those value trade-offs are never refereed. And I would say for you that the first two decades of this technological revolution that begins with the information superhighway information services, the creation of the internet itself, search, social networks, et cetera, is one in which as human beings, we have abdicated our responsibility for having a view about how to regulate the social consequences of technology. And we have trusted the leaders of technology companies to make those decisions on our behalf. And we are living with the consequences of that decision in lots of different domains that I'll tell you about. So that's the frame for the book. And then the book has kind of three core elements. The first part of the book says, well, why are we in a position where new technologies repeatedly are generating social harms? Why is it coming out time and time again that the next new technology, think about Facebook right as a model of this and the consequences of that social networking platform, on democracy, misinformation, et cetera. Why does this keep happening over and over again? And we offer a three-part diagnosis to understand this dilemma that we confront as society. Part one, we are at a moment of transformation in who's leading society and who's shaping our experience of societal evolution. In many ways, the 20th century, the world of finance was ascendant. If you were an economist, if you were a capitalist, if you worked at JP Morgan, you worked at Wall Street, this was a moment of the globalization of capital and the role of capital in shaping change, right the reduction of poverty, the extension of human life and health. 21st century is the ascendance of the engineer, the engineer not as just a builder of products, but the engineer as CEO, the engineer as venture capitalist, If you think about Elon Musk, the engineer as emperor of the world, right? Including space, right? Not just this planet, right? So we're at a moment of the ascendance of the engineer. And so part one of the diagnosis is we need to understand something about the mindset of engineers that helps us understand why these social consequences, these negative externalities, go unaddressed. And so the book focuses on the engineer's mindset. Which is a mindset of optimization. It's a mindset built around defining a tractable problem, like parking tickets, and figuring out the optimal or most efficient solution to solving that problem. One of the examples that we give in the book is a story about a food product called Soylent. Has anyone in the room ever had Soylent? Not a single person. One person has had Soylent. So Soylent is a food product that was designed by an engineer in San Francisco to solve a very tractable problem, which is he wanted to provide for the sustaining of human life with minimal effort to do all of the annoying things. The annoying things include shopping for food, preparing food, cleaning up after you've prepared for food, And add to that sitting and talking to people while you eat food. If your goal is to be as productive as possible in society, and in this case, he was a startup founder, he wanted the most efficient way of meeting his nutritional needs and to avoid all of these taxes on his time. So he created a powder to which you simply add water. And it met all of his nutritional needs. Now, this is not a product that has taken off. Um, is very much a Silicon Valley kind of thing that that you would think would be kind of made up and in the show Silicon Valley. But it's actually real. Um, But you could see how this optimization mindset is at work. Now, there are lots of things that get traded off in the Soylent story when you build this efficiency. Like, for example, taste, which is something that really matters to many people when they eat. How about food as a symbol of cultural transmission? Right, what food represents, or food as a basis for social exchange, for engagement with your children, for community building, all of these things that I value about my relationship with food, a night out from my children, often organized around food, all of these things Soylent doesn't take into account. And I think that's kind of the epitome of the optimization mindset of technologists. And so that's a critical part of what explains why we're in a world with all of these social externalities. Now, it raises this bigger question of efficiency, which is what motivates the engineer, what motivates the computer scientist. Is that a core value? And the argument that we make in the book and the argument that we make to the students that we teach is that efficiency or optimization is what you might think of as a derivative or second order value. It's not an inherent good on its own for something to be efficient. It really matters efficient at what and efficient with what consequences. And so if you're not thinking about these kinds of trade-offs when you approach an optimization problem, you're treating efficiency as a primary value and efficiency is really a secondary value. Now, there are three ways in which the optimization mindset then begins to create problems or wreak havoc. The first is that You might be optimizing something that is inherently bad, right? Often the domain in which you can most directly think about this is warfare, right? The optimization of a killing machine, right? The ability to kill people as efficiently as possible and in as large numbers, right? And if that is your goal, killing as many people as you can at limited cost, right? That might not be a goal that socially we want to support. Now, one could make arguments that nuclear weapons have actually solved consequential problems, so we could go down that path, but I use the example just to make the argument that there might be some ends that we think are just objectionable, and efficiency can't be good when the ends are not something that we would welcome or support. But technology and the tech sector is prone to two other problems which I think are more pervasive around efficiency. The second problem is one where you might have a good goal, but you have to optimize for some measurable proxy for that goal. So let me give you an example. Many of you are probably on Facebook or were on Facebook at some point in your life. Facebook has a goal that feels wonderful. It's to connect people in the world. It's a pretty, pretty wonderful thing. Connection can be incredibly meaningful. But the measurable proxy for that goal is time on the Facebook platform. And so what they're optimizing for in the design of the platform is to keep you on the platform as long as possible. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think that's the best proxy for the amount of connection that I feel to people, especially when my news feed is composed of advertisements and is composed of things that Facebook is pushing to me that have nothing to do with the social connections that I care about. And so you can see this gap between an optimization problem that's focused on a proxy and an ultimate goal that might be good. But the most pervasive problem is that when you're designing new technologies, there are often multiple goals. And those goals are in conflict with one another. And so if you're not thinking about all of those different goals, so I gave the example of the iPhone and access to information on the part of the government, Let's take something like Signal. Signal is an application like WhatsApp. People can chat with one another. It's end to end encrypted. It's not something where a government or even the company can access what is exchanged on that platform. That is an application that optimizes for privacy. It puts privacy as the primary value. But as a society in this country, in any other country, You might have other values that you think are equally important to privacy or even more important than privacy. And the introduction of signal as a technology doesn't referee that value trade off. It chooses the value that then gets imposed on everyone. And that has had significant consequences in the United States, not just in the terrorism example, but for example, related to pornography and child pornography and trafficking. The inability of government, which even has laws on the book, right, to prevent the sharing of this information, it can then not be accessed. Now, we can decide that we care more about privacy than we care about the prevention of child pornography. But whose decision is that to make? The CEO of Signal or a set of political processes? So that's the first part of the diagnosis, an optimization mindset that blinds the technology industry to a set of value trade-offs. Second challenge, part of the diagnosis, is when you take the optimization mindset and you combine it with the structure of finance for the technology industry, which is called venture capital, what you get is extraordinary pressure to scale new technologies quickly to dominate the market before we understand anything about their social consequences. Now, why is that a direct Product of the way the venture capital industry is structured. The venture capital industry is basically betting, okay? It's the accumulation and organization of private capital. You're investing in lots of different companies. Most of those companies are gonna fail, which means you expect no financial return. But your goal is to find that one company that is what's called a unicorn. Right, gets to a billion dollar valuation. And that helps you realize all of the financial returns to pay back your investors and to pay yourself. So what kind of behavior does that lead to? The behavior that it leads to is what's called blitz scaling. Your job is to scale as quickly as possible to get into the hands of as many users as possible to realize all the network effects and market power that come from being first, and to deal with the consequences of that on the back end. Well, who's meant to deal with the consequences of that? Well, it's not the venture capitalists because they've already exited. They've gone off with their return, right, as the company went public or as the company was sold. And so it's left to society to deal with those social consequences. So you combine the optimization mindset with the structure of venture capital. And then there's a third element of the problem, which is that despite externalities being the kind of oldest challenge that governments have confronted with private sector development, in Washington DC, and Washington DC is relevant because the tech industry really has its roots in the United States, Washington decided to craft a regulatory oasis around large tech companies. This was a decision that was made in an administration of Bill Clinton and Al Gore. This was in the 1990s. There's this kind of oft joked about phrase Al Gore used to tell people when he was running for president that he had invented the internet. And people laughed about this. I talked to my students about this. None of them have ever heard of Al Gore because he's the guy that lost in 2000. But he was a really consequential political figure in the United States in the 1990s. And what he means. By I Invented the Internet, wasn't that he coded up the Internet, but he created the regulatory environment in which the Internet could come about. And that regulatory environment was one that shielded large tech companies from effectively any government oversight with respect to accessing your personal data, with respect to liability for the content that appears on social media platforms, right? With respect to sort of informed consent for the ways in which they might use your information or sell it to third parties, like all of these things with respect to to mergers and acquisitions. Basically, the Clinton administration was so intent on what they called at the time, which was paving the pathway to the information superhighway, they said, we need to treat this sector differently than any of the other sectors of the private economy. And they've basically stuck with that ever since. And so these are the three elements that bring us to the current moment, not just of Joshua Browder and the consequences for parking tickets, but also generative AI. And what is generative AI going to mean, not just for the classroom, but for people's labor, or for the probability of doom for society? And we're at a moment where government is trying to recalibrate. Now, the second part of the book then says, "Okay, that's the moment that we're in. What are some of the domains in which these value trade-offs have been apparent, but where decisions made by the private sector have maybe not served the collective or social interest. So the first story that we tell is about the use of algorithms and issues of algorithm algorithmic bias. And the value tension here is between efficiency and serving some end and notions of fairness and justice and equal treatment. The example we give in the book is about Amazon, which is a large company, you know, operates all around the world, and it needed to solve a really hard problem, which is how does it hire people at the scale that it needs? Amazon has so many jobs. You'd have to have an extraordinary large human resources staff to fill all these jobs. So Amazon had this brilliant idea, which is let's generate a predictive model that could review people's resumes and tell us whether someone would be a good fit for Amazon or not. And how are we going to build that model? Well, we actually have copies of everyone's resume who has applied to Amazon in the past. We can turn that into raw data. We also know everything about everyone we've hired. We know whether they've performed well at their job. We know whether they've gotten promoted. We know their bonuses, whether they've been remunerated over time. So we can actually generate a predictive model. So on the basis of any resume incoming, We can make a prediction about whether you're a good fit for Amazon. World's best computer scientists working on this human resources problem. So they build this predictive model. And what happens? Well, the predictive model predicts that women are a bad fit for Amazon. Systematically, women are a bad fit for Amazon. And this model is so good, it doesn't even need to say female on your resume to know you're a bad fit, it knows that you went to a women's college. It knows that you play sports that are correlated with being a woman rather than a man, like field hockey, for example. And so it dings your resume if you have anything that signals that maybe you are a female. Now, Amazon recognizes this. That's the good news of the story. They discover that it is systematically biased against women. And why is it systematically biased against women? Because it is creating into the future what Amazon's culture was in the past, which is a culture that basically privileged men. Right? Men were more quickly promoted and better remunerated. And so it uses that to generate predictions about who's going to succeed in Amazon in the future. And the machine learning specialists at Amazon could not debias this algorithm. They could not figure out a way to prevent this algorithm from systematically discriminating against women. Because drawing on history, you predict a future that is shaped by the history of the past. So they abandoned the algorithm. Now, that's a good news story about algorithmic bias. You're like, how can that be a good news story? That's the best engineers in the world who couldn't solve this problem. And it's a good news story because it was discovered. But algorithms are being used now to make many of the most consequential decisions in our lives with no oversight whatsoever, with no one testing these models, with no one auditing them for bias, with no awareness that you even have that algorithms are being used. So that's the first dilemma, this tension between efficiency and fairness. And if you leave it up to the technologists to solve this problem, who is paying attention to fairness? Second dilemma between data maximization and privacy. I didn't know how many students were going to be in the audience today, so I was going to tell a story about Taylor Swift. But I assume this audience also knows about Taylor Swift because Taylor Swift is the biggest rock star in the world right now. I don't know if she's yet performed in the Emirates, but I assume she'll be here soon. Story about Taylor Swift. Solve a particular problem, which is Taylor Swift has a set of stalkers, Those stalkers In fact, this was in the news this week. Someone was outside her townhouse in New York. Her security is trying to figure out the problem. How do we know where stalkers are? How do we protect Taylor Swift from this problem? So they build a set of facial recognition tools that they install at all of her concert venues. Okay, that's pretty good, like on the security front, basically getting a predictive match You kind of know the face of the person that you're looking for. You're at the kind of, you've got boxes. People are coming up. They're looking at the videos of Taylor Swift that you're showing. And behind that video is a camera that's getting a precise image of their face. You can basically warn her security that the stalker is here. Well, smart security companies were like, actually this information that we have from people's faces is way more valuable than just solving Taylor Swift's security problem because we set up these consoles at Taylor Swift concert venues, which are showing repeated clips of Taylor Swift performing, and people come up and watch them. And we get to see how people respond to these videos and what gets them excited and what is boring to them. And we can actually monetize that information. We can turn that into information to help Taylor Swift and those who produce materials for Taylor Swift sell more material to Taylor Swift fans. And in fact, we get good demographics, right? Because not only do we have adults looking at these videos, but we have Swifties looking at these videos. 13-year-old girls, 11-year-old girls, and we can see what excites them and what doesn't. Only problem is no one knew they were being videoed. No one knew facial recognition technologies were being used on them. No one knew that their personal information was being monetized. And if you think that's just a Taylor Swift example, that's Gmail. Gmail is free. You're like, it's so great that Google offered me Gmail. It's free. Why is it free? Everything on Gmail is information that Google is using to perfect its core business, which is to be the world's best advertising platform. Everything that you put on Facebook is being sold and used with third parties, without with your consent, but without your understanding. Why? Why do I know that you've consented? Because you clicked OK at some point without reading 100 pages of legal language that you can't understand. And so all the deck is stacked against you having any privacy, any control of your own information. So another value tension, the value of data maximization versus the value of your privacy. Third tension, and this is the moment that we're at with generative AI, the tension between automation, automation of fundamental facets of work and human behavior and a value that we might call human well-being, right? Our ability not only to meet the needs of ourselves and our families, but also to find meaning in our purpose on this planet, right? And a lot of us get that meaning from the work that we do. And so we're definitely at a moment where people are thinking about issues of the displacement of labor related to generative AI. You might have been aware that just last year there was a strike in Hollywood. There was no new production both for actors and for writers. One of the central concerns of that strike was that generative AI is going to be used not only to produce animation, content of various forms, but to replace writers. What's going to protect writers in this moment, especially when companies are thinking about their bottom line? So this is a real consequential issue for the moment. The techno-optimists would say, there are waves of technological change in society all the time, and people adjust. New jobs are created, there's this sort of transition time, but one of the things that's often ignored is like, well, who's disproportionately affected by dislocation and who's paying for the costs of transition? Because transition unfolds slowly and real human lives are affected by transition, especially when transition unfolds over decades, not over months, not over the months that you lose a job and have to feed your kids. Last dilemma and then I'll come to the conclusion of the book, is the dilemma that's presented around speech. So social media platforms have been extraordinary as a tool for empowering the individual. And some of the most optimistic voices in the emergence of new technology said, this is the moment where the individual challenges all of the hide-abound institutions, hide-abound institutions being companies, governments, monarchies, The individuals will stand up and be heard. No one can silence them. Well, one of the things that's happened as we built these social media platforms is that these social media platforms aren't just used for the optimistic expression of human ingenuity and creativity and aspiration. But they can also be used to stoke polarization, to spread disinformation to foster discontent. They can be weaponized. They can be weaponized against individuals who are doxxed and bullied. They can be weaponized against societies that lose the ability to separate truth from fiction. Those are social consequences of the social media platforms. And right now, if you're interested in addressing those social consequences, the person that you need to talk to is Mark Zuckerberg. The person that you need to talk to is Elon Musk. And Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk, well, Elon Musk is accountable to no one because his company is privately held. Mark Zuckerberg is accountable to his shareholders, but not to the citizens of the United States or, more broadly, given the consequences of Facebook, the citizens anywhere. It's up to Mark Zuckerberg how he polices speech on his platform. Okay, last few things I want to say, and then I'll open it up to questions. The book ends on a hopeful note. So I don't want to sound like a dystopian or a Luddite who thinks new technologies are just destroying the future. I benefit from new technologies. My kids benefit from new technologies. I think technology has been an extraordinary generator of human progress. What concerns me and my colleagues is that human beings, non-technologists, have abdicated the responsibility for shaping technology's impact on society. So the metaphor I like to use is that when we think about technology and its impact on society, we treat it like a wave when we're standing in the ocean. You can't stop a wave. So we stand there and we let the wave wash over us. Or we step back so it doesn't hit us as hard. But we don't try to change the trajectory of the wave. So technology happens to us. And I think that's wrong. Technology doesn't just happen to us. In fact, technology is ours to shape. And I think about ours to shape in a whole variety of ways. The reason I'm teaching young technologists is technology's impact on society is going to be a function of the choices that technologists make in the companies that they work in, the products they choose to build, the products that they don't build, the features they introduce, the pace at which they roll things out in society, the way in which they think about their company's bottom line. Technology is going to be a function about the investments that those of us with capital choose to make and what we hold companies to as a function of taking our capital, whether you're in venture capital or you're just buying stock on the stock exchange. The effects of technology are ours to shape if you are a consumer of technology. And everyone in this room is a consumer of technology. If you use Netflix, if you use Google search, if you have a mobile phone. And so you make choices about what you're willing to accept or not. And of course, the effects of technology are ours to shape because all of us live in polities, in societies where politics happens. And the institutional rules of those politics may differ from place to place. But ultimately, we live in organized societies that are different than companies. And those organized societies are where decisions are made either via deliberation or on our behalf about the way in which we will relate to technology. And I come from a democracy. And democracy is our technology for making decisions about how to referee these value trade-offs. It's not in the corporate boardroom. It's in deliberation and debate between people who have widely differing views. And we try and arrive at a decision about how we want to live together. Now, technology companies would say, forget it, Jeremy. We don't need politics to solve these problems. If you don't like the impact of technology on society, opt out. So this is Brian Acton. He was the founder of WhatsApp, another technology that I think lots of people use here. WhatsApp was bought by Facebook. He sold it to Facebook. He thought Facebook was going to protect a lot of his values. He got really upset when Facebook moved in directions that he thought were inconsistent with his goals for the application. So he quit Facebook and he went online and he said, it's time to delete Facebook. And we've had moments like this where people want to delete Uber, get rid of Google, don't use any of these things, get rid of Zoom, I don't know if you use Zoom here, the way that all of us now have meetings or hang out with our kids or our grandparents or whatever it might be. Just delete apps. the, the point I want you to take away, the, the, the thinness of this response to the moment, is that you can opt out of applications, but you don't get to opt out of the impact of these applications on the society that you live in. You don't have to be on Facebook, but if Facebook is destroying truth in your democracy, you live with that, whether you're on Facebook or not. Right? If Uber is displacing labor, in a way that puts the obligation for meeting the needs of displaced workers on the state, it shows up in your tax bill, whether you're using Uber or not. So this is an approach to thinking about problem solving that serves the interests of the companies, but doesn't serve the interests of society at large. So actually, the answer is much more in systemic solutions. And I want to talk about three systemic solutions. And I want you to have in the back of your mind Another moment of extraordinary technological change, which was the creation of the automobile. Automobile changed a lot of things about the way that we live. It enabled people to work far from where they live. It enabled people to make decisions to move their family with easy ability to get back to their relatives. It changed the geography of human life. But I'm the parent of a 16-year-old, so I know that this new technology is also a weapon. It's a dangerous technology. Now, I think I happen to think my son is a pretty good driver. But I recognize the power that he wields when he gets behind the wheel to a car and turns the ignition, when he's going 60 miles an hour down the freeway, when he's carrying someone else's child in his car. Now, when we rolled out this new technology in society, the car, our orientation to this new technology wasn't drive as fast as you want. Put the pedal to the metal. If you like to drive 150 miles an hour, do it. Our orientation wasn't pick which side of the road you drive on. Drive on the right if you like driving on the right. Drive on the left if you like driving on the left. We didn't say if you like to drive fast by schools, Drive as fast as you can. We recognized that there were a set of social implications of this new technology. And we built a set of rules of the road that enabled people to coordinate their behavior, both to realize the benefits of new technology, but also to mitigate some of the potential harms. That's the moment that we're at with generative AI. That's the moment that we were at with social media, that we were at with internet search, that we're at with the mobile phone, that we're at with the metaverse, right? These are the moments that we're in. What are those systemic rules? And I'll just end with three sort of perspectives that we have on what's needed to address these externalities in a more systematic way. The first is that we've got to recognize that the pace of technological change is always going to be faster than the pace at which government can address social harms, which means that thinking about the social consequences of technology can't simply be the province of government. It has to be the province of and responsibility of business as well. And the way that you think about that is the emergence and the need for creating a set of self-regulatory norms inside computer science and engineering around issues of responsible product design or responsible artificial intelligence. Now, why do I think such a thing is possible, different than laws, different than government institutions? Because it's exactly how the life sciences emerged. The other most powerful technology that's shaping the next century is CRISPR. It's a a gene-modifying technology. It's going to shape everything about human existence going forward. You've heard a lot less about it. But part of what's happened around CRISPR was the creators of CRISPR organizing all of those who are engaged in this enterprise to self-police the use of this new technology. Why? Because they were concerned about the genetic modification of babies. Initially, it was a concern that was abstract. Until there was a doctor in China who did it, that doctor was not only arrested, but he was banished from legitimate scientific practice. So a set of norms inside of the scientific community about acceptable uses of CRISPR and unacceptable uses, recognizing that the pace at which this technology could do harm was far faster than government was going to be able to respond. We are at a moment in big tech where there's an orientation to self-regulating structures, where there's an identity inside companies that's rooted in things like integrity or responsible product design or trust and safety. And so part of the teaching that I do is to say to technologists, it's no longer someone else's job to think about these social consequences. It's your job. It's the essence of being an engineer. And one of the embodiments of this is a set of commitments, voluntary commitments that the White House has negotiated with all of the largest AI companies around safety, around security, around trust and fairness that aren't legislated, that aren't mandated, but that are reflective of a moment in which companies are reconsidering their relationship to a broader set of stakeholders. The second core element is to think about the power that is amassed in a small number of technology companies. They're called the FANG companies. Facebook, Apple, Amazon, um, uh, Netflix, and Google. This list of five changes a little bit over time because it doesn't include all the large AI companies. Microsoft is now back on this list uh, with the emergence of generative AI. But we're at a moment where the network externalities, the market power, is so concentrated in a small number of companies that even if you wanted a different balancing of these values, you can't even get it on the private market. There's one company that basically does internet search. You're stuck with Google search, regardless of the way it uses your personal data. You're stuck with one platform to exchange on a market. You're stuck with one world superstore, which is Amazon. right? And the list goes on and on. And so the effort to think about antitrust, which is one of the dominant features of the European and American regulatory landscape, is very much thinking about this consolidation of economic power which becomes a consolidation of political power and exercises a stranglehold over our regulatory process. And what is so striking has happened is that concerns about the concentrated power of big tech are there for Republicans, the right, and they're there for Democrats, which is the left. Everyone is concerned about this concentration of power for lots of different reasons. Not everyone is concerned about the same externalities. And so this is a domain in which we're seeing a lot of change on the ground. And then the last thing I want to say is that we are going to need to build political institutions that are capable of governing technology. And I use the word democracy in this case because democracy is the system of government in the United States. It's the system of government in the European capitals, you know, which are the second biggest market outside of China for most of these large technology companies. And so the regulatory landscape is going to be shaped by the choices of political institutions in democracies. But democracies are not up to the task. They don't seem to know anything about how technology works. They can't seem to attract technologists to work in their ranks. And the political incentives, because of the concentrated power of large technology companies, are such that our political institutions have often been quite captured by the interests of those who exercise power through these large concentrations of private capital. But the United States isn't the only regulatory environment. And I'll just end by saying we're at this moment right now where there are competing paradigms about our relationship with AI. What is the role of government vis-a-vis AI? And the US just rolled out its own regulatory framework. It's largely a self-regulating framework. It relies on companies to police themselves And it tasks government with figuring out what are the consequences of companies' decisions. And once we know what those consequences are, we might do something about them. That's very much a product of political paralysis in the United States. It's not clear the US could do anything else. But Europe is moving in an entirely different direction. The European Union has adopted something called the Artificial Intelligence Act. It's rooted much more in the way that we regulate any pill that you take into your body. Because pills that you take into your body can address your disease, but they can also cause significant harms. And before any pill is available to you, it goes through an extraordinary regulatory process where the biology and chemistry are tested. And then it's tested on animals. And then it's tested on the most extreme human cases where, if there are harmful effects, people are willing to take the risks. And only at the last stage is it tested in a systematic way on a large representative sample of people. And even then. There's a high benchmark for approval. And that's rooted in something called the precautionary principle for regulation. And the EU is bringing that lens to new technologies and says, for certain kinds of technologies, their potential harms are so significant that they need to be tested before they're rolled out into the world. And even for technologies that don't meet that threshold, we need to know a lot more about the testing that's been done privately by the companies to assess these harms. So this is a game changer. It's super hard. No one knows whether the European bureaucracy can pull it off. And the critics of it, which you'll often hear, are saying, well, Europe is just doing this because Europe doesn't have any innovation itself. So because the US is the driver of tech innovation, Europe is the regulator. My former boss, Obama, even made this story. America innovates, and Europe regulates. That's an easy bumper sticker. But what I want to suggest to you just by way of ending is it's actually much more symbolic of the consequential moment in which we live, in which citizens and people who represent the interests of citizens are standing up and saying a world in which technology's effects is determined primarily by the technologists who build them is a world that is generating harmful social consequences that we can no longer accept. And how we choose to navigate that world differently is the task that we confront this year and into the next decade, and it will have dramatic consequences for our kids and our grandkids. And with that, I'll take your questions. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute